if I get a thousand subscriptions to the podcast, <laughs> shall we do a shall we do a jam? Yeah, we could do a little a little duet. We could just change the name to Coffee and Geography and Jazz. <laughs> <laughs> jazz. All right. Okay, jazz. everybody. Oh no, yeah, I don't know what great. I said. Oh no, I'm going to be panicking now. I can rem- if this takes off and we get to nine nine eight, I'll be like, yeah, and stop promoting myself. Hello there. My name is Kit Rackley, my pronouns are they, them, and this is Coffee and Geography. The aim of the show is to get to know, explore, and celebrate the diverse and intersectional range of people on this rock we call home and their love and passions of it. We'll find out why guests identify as geographers, and if they don't exactly, We'll have fun exploring all the myriad of ways that connects their life to geography. So, pour your favourite brew, get cosy and listen in. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at Coffee Jog Hot. Off we go. Hi everybody and welcome to a, oh, it was 100%, 88% solar powered episode of Coffee and Geography because the washing machine's running. It's a bright April morning here in the east of England and how appropriate is that because I am joined by who I think is one of the brightest, shiniest geographers I know, Katie Walter. Hi Katie. Hello. Wow, what a lovely introduction. It's so nice to be here. <laughs> Uh, I do I do mean that from the heart, and you are a, a full-time head of humanities, part-time florist, full-time crossword lover, full-time plant lover, and very much part-time runner, cyclist, um, swimmer, active person, and you love talking all things curriculum, teaching and learning, and equality in education. So I'm going to make a stab and say that <laughs> spring is your, well, maybe not your favorite season, but your season. Would that be right? Yeah, you are. Yeah, it's interesting. You are sort of there because I think as a florist, lots of people think spring, that's the time when there's so many lovely flowers. Um, And it is my second favourite season. But actually, my first favourite season is is autumn. I like when everything starts to die. (laughs) Um, Which is maybe a bit morbid. I don't know. I just I love the colours of autumn. I really love getting dressed up. All, all warm I think there's I have a bit of a kind of existential dread sometimes about the summer approaching and, and you know having to be all sweaty <laughs> <laughs> so I'm quite I'm quite looking I, lo- I like looking forward to Christmas um you know everybody knows winter's the worst season but <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but I, no I do love the spring and I and I I love the kind of the bright blue skies on those cold days just yeah I get so excited when you see those first crocuses and the first daffodils. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, my, my, my wife will totally um, agree with you because my, my wife's a Minnesotan and doesn't like about the British climate. Is that how the seasons just seem to kind of like meld and fade into each mm. other? Whereas in Minnesota, because of their continental climate, they have very distinct seasons and um, she absolutely misses the deep reds and and beiges and oranges and browns of the winter time there. I mean, they mm. really are quite spectacular. I mean, I never knew there were so many shades of browns, reds and oranges until I visited Minnesota in the autumn time. So I completely can understand, you know, and I know there are places in the UK that are like that too. Um, not so much here in the east of England, though, but... Um, no, and not so much in London. <laughs> no, I can imagine so. You found the odd tree. <laughs> <laughs> but 
on, on that note, though, tell us a little bit more about your... I, I see a lot of your activity on Twitter, of course, as a, as a geographer, being that that's how we've connected. But I also see quite a lot of beautiful posts and, and pictures that you stick up on Twitter about like the flowers and your displays that you create. So tell us a little bit more about that. Well, it was actually... Floristry was my university job. You know, it was what I did in the summer and, and Christmas time just to earn a bit of money in a florist. Um, and I, I loved it. It was it was so therapeutic. And I'll never forget what one of the workers who worked at the florist said to me, you know, they said, um, you're always making somebody's day better with flowers. And, you know, even at a funeral, flowers are often the thing that make people smile or, or make them happy. And I've, I've honestly just found that to be true. You know, never have I received flowers and been annoyed or <laughs> given flowers and and someone kind of go, meh. <laughs> um, people, <laughs> people they, they really do brighten people's day. And even if it's just photographs of them. Um, and I'm really fortunate that my mum has a beautiful garden in Kent, which she, you know, she and my stepdad, they dedicate their lives to. And so when I go home to see them, I just, take the opportunity to just pick flowers and make bouquets. So I've, so, I've sort of had that on my doorstep for years, which has been really lucky because I've kind of just practiced without having any reason to. Um, my poor mum ends up with all these bouquets around her kitchen <laughs> that I've made. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just kept doing it and I kept, and I, and I always said, oh, I'd love to do it one day. I'd love to do it one day. And then I think as many people found in the pandemic last year, they just had the time to reflect, go, you know, I really love doing that or I really love embracing that creativity. Um, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to set it up. And so I decided to set up this forest, which obviously I have to do part time. You know, I don't have a shop. Um, I, I either do it from my kitchen or my partner's living room <laughs> um, and just wherever there's a space to do it. Um but yeah, I, I sell through a cafe, a local cafe or people just get in touch with me on Instagram to do their weddings. And um, it's it's a really, really good way of switching off from school because I love school and I love teaching. And I, I'm not sure I could ever fully leave that. But, you know, in the future, I could see myself going part time and, and doing the flowers on, on the side that in that way, because it really is really good therapy. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I, I, I just, I feel very, you know, people talk about mindfulness and, and, you know, switching off. I feel very much like I'm switching off when I'm doing it and it's the, and it's all I think about. I've never quite got that with yoga. When I do yoga, I just hurt. <laughs> and I'm just like, how do people say that this is mindful? Um, whereas flowers is, is, yeah, it's my mindfulness. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, that's, that's creativity has really been kept in keeping me going as well the past the past year and, and what i will also add to that is is um part-time uh you know so i i kind of work part-time now and and i would definitely strongly excite, advise that if 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 you have you know the capability and the privilege to kind of maybe maybe do that you know there are so many things need to fall in place for you of course to be able to work part-time but but i mm -hmm. found that working just dropping down to four days a week like has really done a massive boost and benefit to my well-being because I can spend that other one day a week doing something I'm passionate about. Um, now, now my my partner would 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 kind of scowl at me because I spend my one day a week doing more work, but I do my all my geography <laughs> freelancing work, and I and I as as you know, I take a lot of pride and passion in in that. It's so great, like with your flowers, as you just said, you are absolutely right. They brighten 
everyone's day and even me i have severe allergies um <laughs> which is a massive shame because i totally agree with you i love flowers i love how pretty they can be we have a bush out the front of our house which which i can't i don't know what the name of the bush is but it just bursts with blue flowers and it gets oh, covered wow. in bees every you know this time well between now and, and the middle of summer and it's just beautiful and i can just sit there for hours and watch the bees on there we, we have some lovely bees around here they're like those really placid uh, docile bees which don't sting you they can fly around right by you they don't care about you you don't care about them and we put wildflowers in our garden around our veggie patch so yeah i totally agree with you kate they they really do brighten in one's day and as long as i'm not sneezing the hell out of yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah well i think that's an interesting point that you raise about you know how easy it is to grow flowers in this country and that's the kind of i suppose the usp of of my florist is that i only use flowers that are grown here and you know linking it back to geography um, if we think about the impact of climate change, you know, all you have to do is look at the all of the English wines that have been winning all of these awards, whereas, you know, historically it's been the French for decades. And you, you, that does make you think, you know, what what is the future of growing going to be in this country? And you, all I think about when I visit, especially my mum's garden, is like, this is so floriferous. <laughs> you know, you don't need to you don't need to import them from Colombia and Kenya. Um, and kind of I, I like to think of it as like, outsourcing their uh, the water consumption <laughs> when we do that um, but because they can grow perfectly well here not in the winter that is the issue but in the spring and the summer as you said the flowers that we we can grow in this country are just beautiful and they smell so much nicer when they're not imported <laughs> um, if you've ever bought roses I mean probably not you if you've got allergies but um, many people buy roses and they say oh they don't smell and it's like well no probably because they've traveled over half the world <laughs> So. I do have to give a segue though into what we're talking about next, and that is um, is that what we are drinking because our drinking probably has got a bit more of a of a bit. I don't know about you, but mine has got a big carbon footprint. I mean, I, I do have yes. to drink a blended tea, and I, and I need to look at more local examples. Um, and yeah. I keep giving the, ex, the it's not an excuse, but I do keep giving the reason. So like, I I, I we're we're as a household, we're pretty much carbon neutral. So we have a I suppose Great. we have a carbon budget and that's part of it but me by the side what have you got to drink this so morning i am drinking coffee um and i am a big advocate for instant coffee <laughs> freeze-dried coffee really just does it for me <laughs> um but yeah i'm almost certain i'm actually looking at the packaging here um i think the packaging is saying it's from south africa but I'm pretty sure that's not where the coffee would have come from. But it doesn't actually say. It's just a Nescafe um, gold blend. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's not telling me, which I think in itself, the fact that it's not outlining where the oh, coffee comes from is quite revealing. Um, I, I, I really love coffee. I love going out to, to drink coffee at, at coffee shops. And, you know, invariably, the, the, the selling point for that is come and drink our, you know, amazing Colombian coffee or um, you know, Costa Rican blend, and you think, oh, how delicious. And then actually, when you think about the carbon footprint of that, it's like, oh, this is a bit problematic. Um, but I do love coffee. It's delicious. <laughs> For this podcast, we're actually mapping um, the... We're, we're trying to map in the brews that we drink to kind of raise this kind of issue and, you know, and to what extent are each of the brews that we... we um, that we drink are sustainable both you know not just environmentally but socially as well so so that's uh so 
when this podcast goes out, there'll be a link in the description to the map that we're doing and then people can investigate. And if they can't find much about what Nascafe are doing, then they can perhaps, if they feel inclined to challenge them about being more sustainable. So Yeah, well, we can definitely look up afterwards, you know, where 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 does the coffee that goes into their gold blend, where does it come from? Because um, we definitely need to add it to the map. <laughs> definitely. Right, we're going to talk about your sense of uh, place now. Now, you're actually our second guest that we have that we've had that lives next to the London Underground Northern Line. So you're ah. a stone's throw away from Tootenbeck Tube Station. Yes. And we had uh, Glynis, who's our, who was our first guest, who is down the track from you in Morden. Yeah, yeah, I know of Glynis. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you tell us a bit about what tooting is for you, your identity and your sense of place? Mm. Yeah, I moved to tooting four, three, three years, four years ago now. And uh, because I got a job there um, in a school. And so kind of by accident found it as a place that I, you know, it was never, I didn't really have any friends living there at the time. It was never somewhere that um, stood out to me in particular, other than that, you know, most of the people I knew who lived in London did live in Southwest. So I knew that I needed to be around that area. And anyone from southwest will know that it's it's not that well connected as the tube goes unless you are on the northern line um there's a lot of buses but um, yeah so so being on the northern line was something i, I always wanted to do and, and my house is actually a two minute walk from tube station which is so convenient um but it's still about 20 minutes to get anywhere central and then and then change so it's not it, it there was a famous time when um I have a lot of friends from Cambridge because that's where my previous school is. And I agreed to meet them at Liverpool Street. And it took me longer to get across London from Seaton Beck than it took them to get down from Cambridge. Makes total sense, yeah. <laughs> so that, I mean, that gives you an indication about how well or well well not connected it is. Um, but I, I love tooting as a place it's because it's a bit bit further out and because it's not quite as, as well connected perhaps as some other parts of London. It does feel like it's uh, there's a real community here um, and a lot of the places to go out and eat and a lot of the uh, coffee shops, they're, they're kind of hidden gems and they're not really that discovered yet, some of them. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, if you just go down down the, the northern line, I say down, up the northern line, if you, if you travel up uh, towards central London, even just one stop towards Ballum, it's definitely... Um, it's a bit more gentrified around there. It's much more expensive to buy a house there. So it is creeping out towards Tooting Beck. Um, and actually, you know, I could never afford to buy a house here. It, it, it is very much that that underground line effect. It's very expensive around this area. Um, I don't know. It's, I just feel like it's maybe got a little bit more character. <laughs> that, I say that I'm sure people from Ballon would not agree with me, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's 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 what I love about it. I feel like there's a it's really really diverse. Um, if you want to to get a good curry, all you have to do is walk down Tooting High Street because oh my goodness, the smells from some of the curry shops are amazing, and and I lo I love that part of it. I love that um you know you can get so much different cuisine, and there's so many different kinds of people living around here. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up in the countryside. I love the country. And I I think that that is a lovely way to live. But I, I think I would miss the, the diversity that you do get in somewhere like Tooting Beck. 
One thing that's been taking place, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there is this been this campaign, this amazing campaign that was headed by uh, Dan Raven Ellison. Uh, shout out to Dan. Hi, Dan. Uh, come on the show, please. <laughs> um, and creating the first ever national park city in the world. So London is the first ever national park city. Um, are you aware of national park cities? Well, it's funny that you bring it up because not only am I aware, but I've just been accepted to be a ranger for oh. London National Park City, which is so nice. exciting. Um, and I think they they already had about 50 rangers before and now they've, they've kind of recruited their second batch. I think one of the things that they were looking for was um, people who, yeah, they, they maybe had, um, I don't know, access to education or, you know, it, teaching children about the outdoors and making London greener and that sort of thing. But they also wanted other <laughs> skills or other areas of expertise. So I guess that's where I come in with my floristry and, you know, understanding the challenges of importing all these flowers and, and their their supply chains. Um, I'm thinking about how we can utilise our green spaces more. I mean, even on the road that my school is on, there's a big campaign just to make all of the verges wildflowers um, and so that's something I'm, I'm going to get my school involved in. Again, just, re, you know, this idea of rewilding London um, doesn't have to be knocking down buildings and <laughs> planting, you know, uh, fields in their place. It can be about using the infrastructure that we've got already or using the landscapes that we've got already and thinking about how we can, yeah, make those more friendly places for wildlife and, and generally nicer places to be around. I mean, I don't know about you, but I much prefer walking down a street that has lots of flowers and trees on it than you know a boulevard style rather than just a concrete jun- jungle <laughs> you know what my dream is i mean there's a dystopian future and a utopian future for me i i love this book called the world without us by alan wiseman um it's one of my favorite books that if humans were just to disappear you know at the click of a finger what would happen how would nature retake you know the earth and what would crumble and then there's this amazing illustrations that was done for it of showing you know like the cities being rewilded naturally like with creeping vines and trees like bursting and plants bursting out of the concrete and things like that i want to flip that around i want to see rather than nature coming back and rightfully taking its place on this earth in a parasitic way i want to see that kind of happen but in a symbiotic way with with humans i actually Mm. want us to have plants and trees growing off of our buildings, around our buildings, surrounding our buildings, you know. And I always kind of think, because I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan, I always kind of think of like, you know, the way that the hobbits live almost, how they how they integrate yeah. everything into the landscape. And and I know that obviously with the, the infrastructure that we have at the day, you, you know, it's hard to retrofit that. But you're absolutely right. Plants, flowers, green spaces can be used in a symbiotic way with the infrastructure, with the buildings that we've got. And I think that's um, one way one way forward. And, and it would make our cities so much more of a pleasant place to be. And I think that's what one of the things that Nas- the National Park City Scheme is trying to do. Um, and the there's an amazing... I, I love the tube map. It's a thing of beauty. I, I love those kind of diagrammatic kind of things. I know you're a lover of maps too. And um, mm. But the designer Helen Illis produced something called the Green Ground Tube Style Map which is amazing, which is, so it's the same style as London Underground map. And it's just connecting everywhere, which which connects all of the green spaces and all the pockets of wild spaces in London using the design of the tube number. And Tootin Beck is on there. Yes. Yeah, well, I I think Ben Bishop um, on uh, Twitter recently challenged some of the other National Park rangers to do a 10K run, running through as many of 
green spaces as possible. I think he got 11 on his one. Um, and again, like what, how useful will that, that map be for people who want to plan that route or even, you know, even if you just want to explore somewhere that's pretty close to you that you maybe just weren't aware that you either had access to or maybe just weren't even aware it was there. I guess the real challenge now is about thinking of ways that we can make all Londoners aware of that, not just those who are keen on sustainability or passionate about being outdoors. You know, how can we use this as a teaching tool in schools? How can we get businesses on board with this? How can we make families more aware? So it's it's quite exciting, this project, and, and you know, thinking about how, how we can be involved in raising that awareness. You are absolutely right there. And I, as as you, as you know, I, I talk a lot about privilege and using geography to teach privilege as well. And I and I want privilege to be flipped to be a positive thing, something that that you can you know you should be proud of, you know, based on your actions, how you how you interact with other people, how you work within the community. And I and I really one thing I love about the the London uh, National Park system is is it is trying to get away of London's to gain the privilege of the location that they are by by connecting back to it as a place you know as a, as, as a place for community and a place for, for nature and there are yeah. so many people too many people in London who lack so many different kinds of privilege but this is a privilege that they can enjoy you're if they are made to wear about it if they are involved in the process if and so I'm really really keen to see how the, the the national park city you know scheme progresses within the next 5 10 15 20 years because to get more of these people you know who feel disenfranchised about the area that they live in or or they don't have that sense of pride and privilege yeah i, I think you're absolutely right and i think the word disenfranchised is is crucial and i think the lack of investment on a personal level will be a big part of that you know people feeling like there's no Point in investing, or they don't they don't have a voice to be able to invest in their their spaces. So yeah, I hope that it's a program that will give people a platform and the opportunity to, to do that. We're gonna um, move on now, and we'll we're going to do something to try and bring an, an element of organised chaos, and that is um, <laughs> some features of the podcast. So we're gonna have a go at the first one, and we call this one uh, "Jog Your Memory." Little lullaby there. I don't know why I selected that to be the memory one, but anyway. Um, so we're going to discuss your views about a significant geographical event without me revealing when it took place. And you've got to guess when it did take place. Now, we were both delegates and presenters last week at the Geographical Association's annual conference for geography teachers, academics, and specialists. I don't know about you, but I'm still knackered from that. I'm still exhausted. I'm still working through all of the talks that I couldn't go to because they clashed with another one that I wanted to go to. So I've, I've got about a 60, 60, uh, 60 different talks that I still need to catch up with. And I think I've done about four. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I mean, it was it was such, such a great uh, conference. And given that we couldn't be in person, that, you know, I think they did a great job. And, and there's so many really thought-provoking talks and I guess the challenge is like condensing all the ideas and being like okay right now what am I actually going to do about this <laughs> because I've heard so much wonderful stuff um so yeah it was it was brilliant a re really good event but lots to catch up on that's always a problem with the GA conference it's a problem that they won't be able to I mean Becky Kitchen tried to do a fantastic job by having this session at the very end about like how to 
digest everything and i and i and i strongly recommend i would recommend to becca actually she makes that particular session free for everybody um but i just want to give a shout out as and i know you would echo this you know to 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 becky to julie to especially to harriet uh, brooks and all the team at the ga to susan you know everybody you've put in a fantastic amount of effort you do that every single single year and we're so appreciative of it and you do so much for the geography community that we really appreciate it and um and i and you mentioned about there, there's i mean I, the only one i've managed to catch up on so far is davika krishnan's uh, talk from tigers to tetra bags so from tigers yeah. to tetra bags the empowerment of women in india uh, and she connected all the way from bangalore which was amazing so thank you davika for for doing that now we'll come back to the empowerment of women bit a bit later because that's something I know that we're both are pa- passionate about. But here's here's your geographical moment, which we're going to link to India, right? Okay. So if I read this statement out, so way before us humans were around, India rifted away from Madagascar and moved northwards at a steaming fifteen centimeters per year, which is black buck antelope speed in ge- geological terms, right? But what happened next, and when did this occur? Right. Okay. So. I'm just going to preface this by saying my dad is a geophysicist and I didn't get his genes. I, did, I didn't get, I'm a human geographer. I really am. And so um, before I give an answer, which is embarrassingly off, I'm just going to say, I'm sorry, dad. Um, so, right. This, this is uh, the Indian plate colliding with uh, the Eurasian plate. Am I correct? Got it spot on. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So geologically, I'm going to say I think this was 50 million years ago. <laughs> oh, you awesome. Pretty much spot on. Yeah. So hey! the process started, the process started around about 90 million years ago. That's when the, okay. the you really had the, the movement starting. And yeah, and the the Indo-Australian plate um, collided with the Eurasian plate around about 55, to, started to happen 55 to 50 million years ago. So absolutely oh, spot on. Good. <laughs> I know that we kind of appreciate, but I don't think very many people appreciate what a, a massive, significant geological event that that was. Because you think about all the natural and human processes that now take place on the Indian subcontinent and how that influences things around the world. It is a massive, yeah. significant event. So, just so for example, my, my specialism: you take weather, weather and climate. So obviously you've got um, the way that the winds now move around because you've you've got the cold, the really, really stiff cold air that comes off from the north, so off the plateau of Tibet and then comes rushing down the Himalayas. And then you've got that very, very warm, moist air that comes off the Indian Ocean, of course. And then that, and then the way that the the earth moves around the sun and, and changes with the seasons, that sets up the monsoon patterns. And, and, you know, and the whole of that area of the world is dictated by the rhythm of the monsoon and that would not occur if those two plates did not collide and form the himalayan mountain range so you know that's one example of many and then of course you've got the i mean what what about from a human geographer point of view that what about the indian subcontinent can you think of anything where from a human geographer point of view there yeah well i mean absolutely i mean i I think firstly you know that i I always think back to prisoners of geography um you know charged to marshall um and the the chapter where the plateau of Tibet, you know, the Tibetan plateau, being that natural barrier historically um, between, you know, kind of China and, and slightly western, further west in, in Asia. And so kind of thinking about how the physical geography has dictated, you know, historical wars or migrations or um, 
settlements and, and where, where population has really developed. So I think the physicality of that landscape dictating, you know, past human events, um, it, it's undeniable. You know, I even even think about, you know, Bangladesh and and um, the, the Delta there. And the, I, I always think link it to the human geography and think about how, you know, when there's a monsoon, how are the people affected? Um, so that's just the natural human geographer in me. But yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, even thinking geopolitically about the, the conflict that's gone on in that area um, and, you know, thinking about the ongoing conflict in the sort of northern India region and how much of that has been determined by, um, you know, whether it's a debate over water and, and um, the, the Indus River and whether that's debate over territory. Again, a lot of that has been, you know, or, or that's been presented as a result of the physicality of the landscape. So, yeah, I, I personally love that overlap in geography of like thinking about, well, what physically has caused this human event to take place in the first place. I think that's that's yeah. maybe where the, the the labels of physical and human geographer are quite limited, actually, because you can't you can't actually really have one without the other. Totally. <laughs> So much, so much to explore in that area of the world. It's a beautiful region. Have you been to India? I've, I've loved it. I have when not. I went. No, and I'm really was interested about what you were saying about you know the, how the, the physical influences the human. Of course, um, the the Himalayas and the Tibetan Plateau was a, a way of limiting you know the expansion of the British Empire as well. You know, the British Empire yeah, had absolutely. had you know everything south of the Himalayas. So obviously, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, all that area. You know, heavily influenced. By the by, British colonialism, but they just could not expand into above. You know, Nepal was about as far as they got, and they could not expand further than that. And and Western China in particular was was spared to to some extent anyway. You know, that whole British colonial march forward. Whereas then the east coast of China, like Hong Kong area, didn't because obviously that was accessible by the sea. So you're absolutely yeah. spawned. So so I, I I always tend to think that environmental determinism um, is not separate from things like colonialism actually like colonialism has made the environmental factors worse for the people who live there yeah i was oh, well we can, we can maybe get into that another time but i've just finished reading black and british and and even just understand how important the i mean it, all you have to think about you know is you know why is why is ghana where it is and you know why is why is sierra leone where it is or or not necessarily where it is but why is why has there been so much historical interest in that area I, I guess is the way of, of putting it from the, you know from the colonizers perspective and mm. um yeah just seeing how the accessibility by by water made it it's so appealing to the to the british colonizers yeah just again understanding the importance of accessibility and the importance of you know even even what the landscapes in themselves offered colonizers as as being such a motivation for them to kind of you know come and take everything they wanted um so yeah again you can't you you can't separate those two discussions i think i want to talk a bit more about you now there is some something i've already alluded to that we're both very very passionate about and that's that's intersectional feminism um and next month you'll be talking to the wonderful ellie hopkins 
or, or but better known as the curious geographer so every if, if people just search for curious geographer they'll find ellie she's had massive success with with the video interviews that she's been doing and they've been absolutely a, a boon to any geography teacher and geography student and you're going to be talking to her actually about uh feminist geography and by the time this episode goes out actually listeners will be able to go back and watch that because this will mm -hmm. go, come out after you've done that so so let's talk a bit about what being a feminist geographer means to you? Yeah, it's an interesting one. And I've actually had a few, would I say debates? Yeah, I'll say debates on, on Twitter about it, because I think there are many people who um, see, you know, feminism with a capital F, um, you know, they see it as a, a very political movement and a very loaded word. Um, and like any label or any group, I suppose, that there will always be members of that group who abuse it and so perhaps gives the entire purpose a bad name. Um, but I, for, for me, having done a lot of reading at university about um, feminist geographers, you know, because historically and, and, and even to this day, the discipline of geography has has been very white and very male and that those who are informing the discipline, it, it's not been the most diverse discipline historically. And so you know, my starting point from university was learning about what those different perspectives were and, you know, who was adding to the body of knowledge of geography, pardon me, of geography, and what perspective were they coming from? And I, I remember doing particular focus on, and I forget who the geographer was, or, but one of their pieces of research was on access to place, particularly from the perspective of disabled people. Um, and we had to try and go around campus in a wheelchair and see how difficult it was in that in that space and in that landscape and in that place to navigate that um, just in a wheelchair. And, and again, the reason I bring that up is that perhaps that's not something that immediately springs to mind when people think about feminist geography, you know, space and access to place. And But actually, it was thanks to the contribution of those feminist geographers that we started to explore, you know, who is being excluded from these these places and who is not being represented and who, it, that word disenfranchised that we talked about earlier, you know, who's feeling disenfranchised and, and, and why and what can geographers do to explore that or unpick that a bit further. And I don't know if you've read um, Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. I mean, that is just an absolutely mind-blowing book. And, she, you know, the, the whole premise of it is talking about the data gap you know the, the the gender data gap between how the world has been built historically for men um and sadly geographers have also you know again historically fallen foul of of that that kind of gender gap and only really thinking about how you know certain spaces have been created with men in mind um and so for me it's about making geography as inclusive as it can be it's about thinking about whose whose knowledge are we listening to? Um, I mean, we all saw that that page in that textbook of the uh, various perspectives on climate change, and all of them were men, and I think all but one were white men. And um, you know, we, that, that that was 2020 or 2019 that that was published. You know, we've still got a long way to go to make everybody feel represented. But also, I think the other thing is that you know, many people say, oh well. Is it just inclusivity for inclusivity's sake? Um, as if the contributions from women or from minorities aren't 
as important, if not more important, you know, given how historically they've been neglected, as the experts who have contributed to the body of knowledge of, of geography. Yeah, how to summarise that? I think it really comes down to making sure everybody is represented within geography knowledge and also that those who are presenting geographical knowledge is a representative field of researchers. So, I mean, again, if we look at the data on who is studying geography, that in itself is very revealing, or more importantly, maybe who's not studying geography and why they're not studying geography. Uh, and again, l- long way to go <laughs> um, in in all of those fields. But there's, I think there's been an awakening in the last year or a couple of years in terms of making sure that there is a proactive approach to giving geography a, I don't know, um, well, giving giving it the best opportunity to be the best discipline by making sure it is representative is perhaps how I would phrase it. I said a lot there. Does that all make sense? <laughs> it totally resonates with me. That's one hundred percent sure. You know, and um, and I totally agree with you. What you said at the very very start about how you say the F word, and I'm not talking about the four letter word. I'm talking about feminism <laughs> and how it sometimes has that same taste in the mouth of some people, and it's mm-hmm. ridiculous because. It was years ago that I was listening to uh, BBC Radio 5 Live and it was a talk, talk about, you know, what is feminism? And like they interviewed like people on the street about what is feminism, what is feminism? Are you a feminist? And like half, mostly the men said, no, I'm not. Okay, do you think, you know, there should be an asked questions, which basically is the definition of feminism? And then, the, the, and then whoever it was said, well, you're a feminist then. <laughs> and But it was just that word that seemed to kind of like make them recoil. And yeah, and there are, you're right, there are elements of the community which, which are, for me personally, I mean, as, as a trans person who, who feels that um, they cannot be feminist with their exclusionary attitude, shall we say. And then the other thing you mentioned about kind of the patriarchy and and that side of, of geography, and it's you're absolutely spot on because geography as a, as a subject, as a as an entity, I think it was um, oh it was in a book by Painter and Jeffrey. I think they released in two thousand nine where they said something along the lines of, you know, geography stemmed from the fact from colonialism and patriarchy, you know, because it was a way of spanning the world, getting to know the world, you know, through cartography, shipbuilding, navigation, you know, as a way to expand this patriarchal kind of empire notion around the world. And that's how geography was born. And it seems we still have that in our core and we need to break free of that because obviously compassion and empathy is not solely, you know, a trait of people who identify as women. We know that, but it's still, it's quite clear to me that there is more of a chance that compassion and empathetic actions take place when you have more voices that are women. Um, Mm -hmm. You take you take what's happened, you know, New Zealand's COVID response has been a far more empathetic, you know, has not, has not just been, you know, we've just said Jacinda Ardern, it's not just been robust, staunch, you know, and strict, but it's been very compassionate and very empathetic as well. And they've done a great job because of that. Um, and then the other thing as well, as one of the number one ways of dealing with climate change, believe it or not, to draw carbon out of the atmosphere is the empowerment of women and girls. Countries which empower women and girls tend to decrease their carbon emissions more quickly than countries that don't. And of course, what do we call this earth? We call it Mother Nature, Mother Earth. I I have my own answer, but I like to think all the listeners listening, why do we call it Mother Earth? Why do we call it Mother Nature? Just have a ponder of that and see what answer you come up with. 
I'm going to leave you talking to that in more depth with Ellie Hopkins, the curious geographer about feminist geography, because I could we could go on it for ages on, mm. on here, but we'll leave it to that. <laughs> okay, one couple more things we're going to do to, to finish off for the last few minutes is that we've got, uh, I'm going to ask you to spill the beans now. Ooh. You play the piano and used to sing in a jazz band. Now, I've missed a trick here because I used to play the tenor saxophone. Oh. Um, and I, I haven't picked it up for years and I and like all my reeds are dusty and split and it's going to sound like a squeak rather than a, a toot but um, so we could have had a go at jamming but that's an opportunity yes, missed done. yeah that's a shame that, that, one for another podcast <laughs> I tell you well okay right if you have the right to decline right because I don't want to put you on a pedestal but let's say if I get a thousand subscriptions to the podcast <laughs> shall we do a shall we do a jam yeah we could do a little a little duet we could just change the name to coffee and geography and jazz <laughs> <laughs> jazz all right okay jazz. everybody oh no yeah, i don't know what i said oh no i'm gonna be panicking now i can remember if this takes off and we get to <laughs> nine nine eight i'll be like yeah and stop promoting myself Oh, then I'm going to have to dust off that sax. Um, okay, so t- tell us a little bit about that past then. So you got a bit of piano and a bit of jazz in you. Tell us a little bit about how you got into yeah, that. What, well, do you still do any of it? You know, I, I don't. And in fact, my, my the piano that I have is at my mum's house. I don't even have it in London. It's very hard to transport a piano. <laughs> Anybody who's ever had Stick one it on the will <laughs> Well, I'm not sure I'd be their best friend if I did that. Um, very expensive as well. Um, <laughs> expensive and, and time-consuming. Um, but, yeah, when, when I... You know, I come from a very musical family. Um, and, you know, really, my brother is the real musician. He's somebody who can... You know, he, hears, he hears a note and he can tell you what it is. He's that kind of good. Um, so but my mum was very musical. My All the person of the family were very musical. So we've always just had a very loud singy shouty at times family <laughs> which has made for um yeah we've, i don't know we've had lots of really lovely occasions where we've all just kind of burst into song it feels a bit of kind of von trap family at times. <laughs> that was the first thought that um, came to my mind as well <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, which is very wholesome and maybe a bit sickening but it is it, it is meant that i yeah i, I always was you know, again going back to that idea of privilege um, I was very fortunate that I, my mum paid for me to have piano lessons, so I learned how to play piano. Um, and I never officially learned to sing. We just, you know, I didn't have any lessons, but we just always sort of did it. And um, I was part of a choir at school, and yeah, we we did a lot of singing in the jazz band. Um, but I don't know why. I mean, I did music at GCSE, but I always just sort of wanted to keep it as a hobby, and I didn't really ever want to go down that route of doing it a bit more formally um but i've done quite a bit of busking on the underground before um especially with my brother um we, we he plays the guitar and i sort of sing and um so it's good to know that if i do ever fall on really hard times i've got that to fall back on <laughs> just go and sing my heart out and hopefully make a bit of money there but yeah it, it, it's not something that comes up very often because it's so separate from either singing either geography or floristry <laughs> you know I, I have almost wondered whether there's a gap in the market for a singing florist but i think that would be very niche <laughs> yeah 
that's it when you go down to part-time you're going to start filling that niche with as the singing florist geographer or something like that yeah exactly i'm sure there's i'm sure there's some demands somewhere for that <laughs> <laughs> oh that's absolutely lovely we're gonna have to bring it to an end now which is oh, oh every single episode i'm like no i want to carry on chatting more but we get into that time now where we're reaching like podcast limits um so <laughs> as we come towards the end of each episode um we i like to get the guest to think of a single word topic that I and the guests on the next show we have to try and link to geography. Now, last episode we have the f- we had the fabulous uh, Victoria Fernandez, who gave a lovely answer to the word hope, which was set by David Alcock the episode before, and. And so the, the word doesn't have to be abstract. It could be a, an object, it could be a person, it could be whatever, right? But Victoria decided to continue with an abstract word, right? That oh, okay. We've got to try and link to geography. So yeah. um, we're going to bash out all the ways we can link the word challenge to geography, okay. right? I'll give you yeah. what I should do now because I've gone straight into it and I should really give the guests a bit of thinking time. So five seconds to think while I ramble on and then I'll start the 30 seconds. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. So the word challenge, linking to geography, go. So my first thought is going to be the challenge of um, lack of access to resources, which we might teach about. Um, and the next one is going to be challenge uh to land challenging landscapes that people live in um i'm thinking of volcanic eruptions and hurricanes and the challenges that people are presented there um as a geography teacher i'm thinking about challenge in the classroom and how we can stretch and challenge our students to think about geography from a uh that's really hard <laughs> it is t- it's tough isn't it it is really tough um yeah. what's a but, good no, word I'm, it's a very good word yeah but uh, <laughs> because because it's you could go at it at so many different angles and and actually all of our guests have had trouble with any word not because they can't think of anything it's because they can come at it at so it's many different much. angles and yeah. and actually everyone uh, this is the fifth episode now and i think everybody has picked up on my game now and that is we know what you're trying to do here kit aren't you you're trying to link you're trying to prove that we can link anything to geography yeah and, yeah, and hopefully yeah. i'm succeeding now but anyway <laughs> but um before yeah. we shoot off katie so you've you can think of something somewhere and and it's hard for us geographers to come up with something that can't be linked to geography but we'll give it our best shot so what do you think mm-hmm. what word phrase name whatever do you want to pose to our next guest i mean it's gonna have to be feminism isn't it <laughs> yes okay I, well i know who the next guest is so that's going to be a fantastic word so okay yep we'll go with feminism well i look forward to hearing that <laughs> brilliant Okay, so um, to finish off, Katie, can you uh, let everybody know how people can find you on social media? Yeah, so if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Educati, which is spelled E-D-U-C-A-I-T-I. And I also have a blog, Educati.com. And yeah, if you follow me on Twitter, I'd love to have a discussion. Yeah, Yeah, I would definitely vouch for that. And uh, any shout outs you'd like to give? Oh, shout outs. Um, yeah, I'm going to give a shout out to Brendan Conway because Brendan is just one of the most generous geographers who has, I, I, you know, as I said, I'm not, not really a physical geographer at heart and my GIS knowledge is very average to poor. Um, so, and he has helped me so much 
um, and and just so willing and giving of his time. Um, and I'm also going to give a shout out to Rachel Robinson, who is the head of geography at Chestnut Grove, because the way that she has been thinking about um, decolonizing geography this year and also being so passionate about it, not making it about herself. And um, yeah, I, I just think that has been she's been very inspirational to me and made me kind of check my own um, privilege and, and check my own platform and not abusing that platform. Um, so those are my two shout outs. Two very, very deserving shout outs as well. I'm, I'm with, I'm with Brendan on the, on the Geographic Association's ICT special interest group. And so it's an, it's an absolute joy to work with him on that. And Rach Robertson, I, I, I would call in the geography community, she's one of my best friends and um, yeah, she yeah, is a delightful person and she's amazing. So two yeah. very, very deserving shout outs there. And I think a lot of people will have the same um, appreciation and affection for you, Katie, as well. So in that respect, and it's been an absolute delight to speak to you this morning. And thank you so, so much for joining me. Oh, thank you, Kit, and thank you for everything you continue to do for the geography community. We don't know where we'd be without you. (laughs) We all do it together. (laughs) Thank you, Katie. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you had fun. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe so more stories and experiences can drop into your favourite podcast app. If you fancy being a guest or have any feedback, follow us on Twitter at CoffeeJogPod and send us a DM. Or you could email coffeeandjog at geogramblings.com. Until next time, keep jogging.